friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming, in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. A special hello to all of our new listeners, as we now are part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network and working, as always, in partnership with the Guadalupe Radio Network. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today I'm very happy to have our legal eagle, Andrea picciotti Bear. Joining us in studio. Hello, Andrea. Hey, Gracie. And we also have our dear friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, Ashley McGuire, with us. You may know her from her thought-provoking book, Sex Scandal, The Drive to Abolish Male and Female, which is a fabulous title, by the way. Ashley, we would love to hear from you. What was the impetus behind your book? Um, You know, I had been writing about the topic from many different angles for a long time and was starting to see kind of a common thread that pulled everything together and um, thought I should write a book. I could also see where the culture was going Hmm. on this um, and wanted to put something out there as sort of a, a road marker. You're the mother of daughters. Two daughters, right? One daughter, two boys. Oh, I'm sorry. I got that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> They're all beautiful blondes. They're really pretty kids. And I, I, I think as a mother of a girl, you make a, a very heartfelt point about the way that the, the world is moving along in, in a direction that erases the femininity of women or makes the femininity of women something that is hard to grasp with dangerous consequences for us. Absolutely. That's one of the reasons why I'm thrilled that we're doing this together as women and going to be you know having a conversation as women because I think, unfortunately, the burden of pushing back on this is falling on women. And as I point out in my book um, and several others have in, in books of a similar genre, it's it's women who are being hurt the mm-hmm. most by gender ideology, by the sexual revolution, and we're the ones who have to speak up about it. Ashley, one of the points in your book that you make in a very powerful way was the danger, especially to girls' sports and women's sports, when the yeah. sex differences are blurred. And my kids, two of my boys, decided they would do winter track. Do it in the fall, they do it in the spring, and they're doing the winter, and I was observing a track meet. And there were boys and girls, high schoolers, and it was radically different, the races. And they're all fantastic children and run incredibly much faster than I could ever hope to or ever did run. But it was very different, the just the sheer physical abilities between the girls and the boys. Could I you? think it's in sports that a lot of us are seeing the, the impact, right? It's very much in our yeah, faces. I have to say that when I wrote the book, which was a few years ago, I would go on radio interviews and go back and reread the section on sports and be like, did I cite this correctly? This can't be right. These stories cannot be real. And now it's like every day I'm hearing mm-hmm. a news story about, you know, the men winning the women's cycling competition. And this isn't even about men who self-identify as women. Sometimes it's just men and boys. And it's sad because I ran track as a girl. And girls' sports really is a really important venue for girls to learn Mm self-confidence, to spend time. time, it's really tough. To spend time. Absolutely. Getting physical exercise. It's a great opportunity for them to get scholarships. It really was sort of a a great leveler between the sexes. And and it's just a very poignant example of how this is actually uh, tilting the playing field, if you will, back Mm -hmm. in favor of boys and men. I think about it now from the perspective my youngest daughter is going through puberty. She's at that age. And I think of her very tenderly because she has, it's very difficult as a, to become a woman. It's a, it's, a, it's a process that's 
Excruciating. Okay, excruciating. <laughs> I mean, beautiful. <laughs> it can be excruciating. It's also, uh, it's, it's overwhelming. And, and it's, it's a huge burden that these little girls are carrying, turning into women. And when I hear about men saying they're going to become a woman, I said, no, 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 no. That's my 12-year-old doing this, you know, day after day, experiencing all these difficult things. Not you, right? And, and I think that it's very good to, to carve out our spaces for our girls, for our young women especially, and say these spaces are, are for your necessities, for your, what you need to grow healthy and strong. Ashley, you mentioned that you wrote the book a couple of years ago, Sex Scandal. Since then, have, I, I know that you continue to write on this issue and you continue to speak on this issue. Have you seen a dramatic uptick? To be concerned of? Yeah, well, I would say sports is definitely one of them. The school issue, which I know we're about to get into, that's the velocity of that one has been really amazing. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot of other examples I, I know that we'll get into in our conversation today. But, yeah, absolutely. We're so glad um, to have another friend of uh, the Catholic Association in Conversations with Consequences. She's been our guest before, but back before... We were on the also on the EWTN radio network. Her name is Mary Hassan. She's agreed to come and talk to us again. We're so happy. She is the Kate O'Byrne Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center here in D.C. Thank you for joining us, Mary. Oh, I'm delighted. It's always great to spend time with you. Mary wrote a book, too, uh, on, on a similar topic. But the book is called Get Out Now, Why You Should Pull Your Children from Public School. And I read it. A shocking book. <laughs> it's very well researched. You did it with your sister, right, Teresa yes, Farnan? Yes, Teresa Farnan. Who's charming. We yeah. had her on before, and, and we consider her a friend as well. And uh, it, it was a shocking book. It was very well researched and sourced, and, and it has um, all these uh, really shocking um, just occurrences, things that are happening across the country. Some of us are protected uh, in our little enclaves, wherever they are, whether it's a parochial school or or a neighborhood that hasn't gone through some of these things. Uh, but you really you really put these uh, things in the book in a way that can't be ignored in a very... Um you know, I, I think it builds off of what Ashley had done as well, because really the problem is the failure to acknowledge the differences between men and women. Mm -hmm. And so the whole gender ideology, gender ideology problem um, is just the extrapolation of that it's it's the magnification of that but it comes back to understanding who we are as persons and really embracing that difference between men and women we're equal but we're not interchangeable isn't that true absolutely <laughs> <laughs> and we wouldn't want to be we wouldn't want to be you know i think that's one of the things that that early feminism got wrong in there were a lot of injustices towards women but the way to fix that was to value women mm -hmm. as we are not to pretend that we should be more like men or to find our value as women in being more like men we need to be ourselves and to have our own voice and and to uh, affirm those young women who are going through you know these girls right. who are who are coming of age and to say these changes these these developments, these are beautiful things. You're, you are a beautiful girl. Mary, you, I really uh, admire you and love our friendship very much. And part of the um, admiration I have is because you're a scrappy Catholic. <laughs> you're really scrappy. You don't give in. Uh, you fight. You say things um, clearly. 
um, with a lot of love, and, and but you really are clear. But your your book suggests to um, readers not to stick in the public schools, that on this, because of the danger of the issue of gender ideology being promoted in the public schools, for their kids, for our kids, the best solution is to pull them out while you continue to fight to stop this. Can you? Right, sure. I, I think gender ideology is a game changer because what it is is the public schools, um, which have shifted radically. If anyone's, you know, grew up and went to a public school and said, hey, I had a great experience, just realize it is radically different today than it was certainly 10 years ago, but even five years ago and even two years ago. And what's, what's different is that the public schools are proposing a vision of the person that is fractured, that is, is completely incompatible with the Catholic vision of the person. So because of that, and because it's having such an impact, it's changing the culture in the schools. It's not just a, a question of curriculum or, or things like that. Because it's it's in the air, well, all of our children are affected. Opt out of. Right. Like, you cannot you know, opt out be. of culture. Hmm. And so this is a game changer. And and while we do want to fight for the public schools, because there are always going to be some kids who are not going to um, be able to be anywhere else, we need to look at our own kids and say, you don't get a do-over on childhood and you need to make the right decision. Um, Mary, this really resonates for me because my husband and I made the really difficult decision to pull our daughter out of the public school where she was going, which was, you know, first and foremost, walking distance from our mm-hmm, house. Mm-hmm. And she was thriving. Free and free. free. She had a great <laughs> group of friends. Uh, it was a very diverse school, something that we wanted for her. Um, and we struggled over it. And I just remember someone who's sort of a spiritual director to me saying something to that effect. She said, I wouldn't mess around with my child's spiritual formation or something mm-hmm. to that effect and I was kind of like you're right I don't get to do this over and and you know you can uh, I think parents like us can really see the writing on the wall like nothing had happened yet at the school yeah. but I knew especially doing the research for my own book which I actually went and read some of I pulled up the curriculums because I was mm-hmm. like is this being overhyped mm-hmm. um, and read the curriculums and they were very disturbing, and it's not a lie to say that they, they start a kindergarten, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. your kindergartner doesn't know how to tell you what they talked about. Um, and one of the things that just sort of breaks my heart is that, you know, not everybody can, A, afford to put their kid in a parochial school or has a good option, mm-hmm. a good parochial school. Um, and then there's so many parents who do care about this issue, but they don't have the time and the resources um, to you know, go to these school board meetings where they're making the decisions mm-hmm. about whether or not to make this mandatory. Um, you know, and d- they're cowed, right? They're cowed right. by the culture that tells them that anytime they protest, they're being bigots and they're being intolerant. Right. And and actually, it, one of the problems on the broad level is that the school boards are no longer responsive to parents. Mm-hmm. They're really their decisions are dictated by what the. Um, school lawyers tell them or and the what letters, the activists pressure. Or the pressure. letters from the ACLU? Exactly. Well, do you think exactly. That that's the pressure points from some of these kind it's, of It's groups the activist groups and, and the left-wing legal organizations that are threatening suit. And they do. And they have a track record. They will file suit if there's one child who has a complaint who wants to push the agenda. But Ashley, I want to pick up on one thing you said. You, you um, Or maybe it was Gracie just saying, you know, the, the public school is free. But I think we have to change how we think about that because there's a cost to education no matter what. And And it's more expensive at a public school than a parochial school. Because 
for Catholic school and, or private school, the cost is, is money. If you're homeschooling, the cost is time. But in the public school these days, the cost could be your child's soul mm-hmm. or they're even just their human stability. Do they understand mm-hmm. who they are as a boy or a girl and that that doesn't change? That's a huge cost. Well, Mary, there's, there's a big shift, especially among all of us high-achieving, high, you know, well-educated moms out there and dads. Sometimes we get into the desire to think about our child's future, right? And we stop at Harvard or Stanford, much better. Um, But we forget we should look a little longer, which is heaven. Right. Um, And it doesn't mean that you can't get to heaven if you go to Harvard. It may be difficult. But it, it, we should really focus giving our child all the tools possible and protecting them from some of the temptations or misinformation that may keep them off that Mm -hmm. path. Or even if we want to simply protect them physically. The transgender uh, juggernaut is is moving fast and it's infectious, right? It is. There's a social contagion element of it. And, and one of the other problems is that we've seen even written into the school regulations that the schools are now hiding mm-hmm. when a child is gender confused. They're hiding that from the parents. They feel no obligation to tell parents. And in fact, they'll facilitate a child's transition. That is very shocking. So, you know, but coming back to just the general point, the long-term view of our children, we want them to love God. And one of the big problems I see with public schools besides gender ideology is God's not part of the conversation all day, every day, you know, every week, 10 months a year, hmm. how many years of, of schooling? And that shapes a child's heart. Is God irrelevant or is God part of everything you're learning and all the major decisions that you're making? And that's something a faith-based school can offer. Well, and one would like to think that at a public school, they, they're simply neutral on the question of God, right? But I think they go a little further. Yeah. I mean, there are good people. Again, there are great teachers and great administrators in the public school, but they wear a straitjacket. They do. Yeah. They, they don't have the opportunity to bring faith to bear. So, Our local public school, uh, the, the principal is a daily mascot. And mm-hmm. I know that she has all the right, uh, the, all the right formation, all the right uh, ideas on and, and right. how to raise children and educate children. But you're right. She wears a straitjacket. Yeah. She's not calling the shots. No. So. Definitely not. But the, you know, uh, when you choose to take your children out of public school, where do you put them? And this is uh, Mary and I That's have been question. talking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mary and I have been talking about this because Catholic schools, parochial schools, and Catholic high schools are finding themselves um, in the same pro- in, in a way in the same facing the same issues, and sometimes without any of the armamentarium that that they could have. But it's now quarter past the hour. You're listening to Conversations with Consequences. We've been speaking with Mary Hassan of the Catholic Women's Forum and the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. about interesting topics like gender ideology and the public schools. Mary, I was wondering if we could pick up a little bit on what we were Gracie was just mentioning, and that's the role of the Catholic school in America. Um, and, and you and I had a conversation a few days ago about Catholic schools consolidating or closing and enrollment being down. What's the horizon look like for Catholic education, and what are the options out there for more Catholic families to benefit from it? So Catholic education is more important now than ever before, and yet I think that's something that 
a lot of people in the church are still struggling with. And I think it's because their their feet are sort of still in the uh, culture of, of 10, 20 years ago that, that said, uh, well, you can you can accomplish, you can support your child's faith just fine with religious ed and, and the cultures. Yeah. Wednesday CCD. <laughs> right, right. Once, Wednesday once a week. afternoon. You know, but the culture is so radically opposed to our faith. And so having our child not just in a certain culture, but with adults who are free to and can help mentor them, shape them, other families who have those same um, priorities, that's that's tremendously important. But if we're closing schools, we're um, we're doing what a friend of mine said is is what farmers never do. Farmers never eat their seed corn. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, if you're starving, great, uh... you keep your seed corn so you can plant for the next the next go round, and and so what we're doing is we're sort of letting our children go. Mm-hmm. We're letting go our of the future corn. of it seems, the church. It seems to me yeah. that our parochial schools are refuges. They're for our children, for our families, aren't okay. they? Yeah, you know, they used to be the center of, of the um, the Parish. community. Yeah, mm-hmm. parishes used to be the the core when they were organized around ethnic enclaves. You know, the immigrants who came in. You'd have the Irish parish two blocks from the Italian parish, and <laughs> but that was the center of life. And so things have changed mm-hmm. because I, I find that the, the Catholic schools sometimes now want to compete with other high end private schools, mm-hmm. and. Um, that's not who they should be competing with. <laughs> there right. is no comp- there is there's really no competition for a, a parochial school, a Catholic parochial school. We it, have to it's be mission focused. We yeah. have to keep it's it. Mission the, the main focus, you know, as you said, Andrea, is it's to get our kids to heaven. It's that long view, and so that has got to be the primary mission, and everything else builds out from there. Ashley, have you and your husband experienced kind of a change in what your daughter is receiving? daily since making that shift? Is oh, that yeah. Something? No, it was the best decision we ever made. In fact, I remember when we toured the school, none of my kids had had Christian education. They went to a Jewish preschool, which was a wonderful place. Um, and, you know, half, you know, it was half of our faith. So they would come home with stories about <laughs> Noah and Testament. Moses. And, <laughs> right, right. Um, but uh, then we were in the public school. But I remember touring the school and going into the preschool classroom and seeing this big poster that just said something like, God loves you. Beautiful. And I was just so taken by, to your point, about mm-hmm. how it was, it's not a radical concept, but to me it felt kind of radical, this idea that my kids would be both steeped in Catholicism and learning. Right. Um, so it's interesting. My daughter, you know, she's done well, and but my son is the one who – um, I think has we've seen a, a specially change in his interest in Bible mm. stories. The, the only thing he wanted for Christmas was the like twenty year old version of the Beginner's Bible, which his teacher has oh, out. So he answer. wanted the one with the different cover. That's all he wanted. Oh, <laughs> that's so much easier. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's wonderful. And part of it. A huge part of it is how children grow up in, in parochial and Catholic school. They grow up from very young understanding that they are not accidents of evolution they mm-hmm. are wanted and loved into existence by mm-hmm. by the person the god who created us each of us and what a wonderful way to start your life 
right? right. Intellectually. And there's, there's an inherent dignity to mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. and that it doesn't depend on how much money you have, you know, where you live, how good you are at different things. It's just because you're a human person and God loves you. And so do we. And I mean, isn't, that's, that, that's, isn't that a much higher concept than self-esteem? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Everyone gets yeah. a trophy. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I have one other little anecdote about my daughter at Halloween. I, uh, one thing that I've also appreciated about the Catholic education is the emphasis on service to others. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the kids were all given little things to go trick-or-treating with to raise money for UNICEF, you know, which I always get a little anxious about some of these, <laughs> like, organizations. But it was so funny to see her trick-or-treating, and they they would answer the door, and she would stick the thing out and say, trick-or-treat for UNICEF. <laughs> and these people were sort of taken aback to see a kid, you know, raising money for children who go without in other parts mm-hmm. of the world. So that's another, I think, beautiful aspect of Catholic education is, is the focus on um, – service to others. Yeah. You know, and I think one thing to emphasize, there, there may be some of your listeners who are thinking, yeah, but our Catholic school is not, you know, it's not, it has this problem or that problem. And, and sure, there, you are going to find the same human difficulties in a Catholic school that you find in every other place. Why? Because every human being is going to be struggling with pride, with vanity, with whatever mm-hmm. it might be. But the difference is there is a, a compass. There's a moral compass. It's the teaching of the church. And you have a chance to have an impact because the the Catholic schools have to be responsive to parents in a way that public schools no longer are. And and that's a huge difference. So Mary, in your book, you also touch upon something that I think is is new to our culture, and that's um, our collective sense of victimhood. <laughs> and the notion of, you know, fashionable notions like intersectionality and mm-hmm. um, cabining our children into different, Boxes, whether someone comes from a minority background or or based on their sex, I haven't experienced that kind of push in the parochial schools. And instead, what I see is just like what you've mentioned, a focus on the unique dignity of each person. Right. I, and I think part of it is because within the Catholic faith, there is an emphasis on um, acknowledging that people have weaknesses, they have needs, and it's our it's our call as Christians to care for each other, no mm-hmm. matter what those needs are. And so you may have the person who's um, an, a recent immigrant and their language is not strong, their language skills are not strong, or someone who's disabled. In, in my sister's school, they have an immersion program for children with Down syndrome. Beautiful. And it is just beautiful to see the way the students in that school just go out of themselves and learn to, um, to become real friends with these other children in spite of their challenges and to really appreciate them for who they are. And so you don't have to get into intersectionality. You're already looking at each person as being an amazing creation of God. Um, in our a, Catholic school, in our Catholic school, Mary, and you and I have spoken about this um, a couple times. The problem that we're having is that even though we have good foundations, the teachers have good foundations, the parents, we're we're all sort of involved in in, uh, in this wonderful project, right, of forming good adults with beautiful values and who will end up in heaven. That's all of our, um, that's what we want for them. But we don't have the language or the understanding or the, of the gender, of gender ideology. We don't know how to meet that moment and how to explain Mm -hmm. it to our children. What, how do you, what do you think is, is the answer to that? 
I think um, a couple of things. One, we have to realize how much, how radically different the world is. So it used to be that we we just Catholics, in fact, for the past fifty years, the project has been assimilation. Let's let's mm-hmm. sort of blend into the culture and and live our faith and be the leaven there. And the problem is the culture has changed us. It's changed. Um, it's led to so many people losing their faith as the cultural winds have have shifted and and really diverged from where the faith is. So I, I think the first thing is just to realize what the challenge is, and then to realize, okay, so we have to one be bold to speak up, and we have to teach anyone who is, I consider on the front lines of the church, parents, catechists, teachers, youth ministers, we have to understand the problem out there, but we also have to have the positive vision. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the truth that the church says? And, What's the and, vision of the person? And we can't shy away from attacking these issues and explaining them to children when they're little, right? Because the culture doesn't shy away. Oh, right. No, the kids are kids are absorbing this stuff already. So, you know, in every challenge, there's an opportunity. And this is an opportunity to really give our kids, but also to, to help adults to understand the church's vision of the human person, why sexual difference matters, and how we live our life, uh, you know, according to those truths, is really going to make a huge difference in our children's lives and in ours as well. Mary, one of the other reasons why I admire you immensely is that in addition to be able to talk with people at kind of the, the for lack of a better word, retail level on how we can teach and form our kids, you have ends with a lot of the church hierarchy. And I know that you've been working with some bishops and some dioceses. Can you tell us a little bit about the places that you've gone to and the receptivity and what we should be in our own diocese asking for leading and helping our Catholic schools be prepared for answering these tough questions? Yeah, so a number of years ago, um, I had the opportunity to talk to almost all of the bishops. They were collected uh, for a workshop that was being given by the National um, the Catholic Bioethics Center. And and they were, this was really the first time that many of them had, had really focused on the issue and grappled with it. It was about three, almost four years ago now. And since that time, I've seen bishops in various places just really dig into this and realize both the threat, but but the opportunity. In other words, mm-hmm. they want to equip their teachers, their parents, and help address this. They they see this as a huge thing for the for the church, and something Pope Francis has said. You know, this is a major major challenge for the didn't, church. Didn't the Vatican release a document last mm-hmm. year? Yes, exactly on this and on education and for Catholic educators. Right? right. I mean, it was directed specifically for them. And what was the takeaway from that document? If you can, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, well, it was it was a significant document. I was glad to see it come out. It was directives from the Congregation for Catholic Education, and the main point is um, that it emphasized the difference in Christian anthropology from what is being promoted now through gender ideology. Again, it's the vision of the person is completely different. But then it talked about the need to to form and our uh, our children, our staff, and to be consistent with the teaching of the church. But it also talked about being pastoral, and that's something that we Catholics um, try to live. We're talking with Mary Hassan, and the conversation continues right after this break on EWTN Radio.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. We've been speaking with Mary Hassan of the Ethics and Public Policy Center and also of the Catholic Women's Forum that she spearheads that I think you founded also. You know, uh, when Pope Francis became uh, Pope, he started talking about sort of uh, making some changes to make more room for women. John Paul II and Pope Benedict had done a, a wonderful job laying the foundation of um, a sort of women's place in the church and, and elevating the dignity and voices of women. But Pope Francis was making um, or was alluding to the fact that he wanted to to do some new things. So I spoke with Helen Alvare and we decided, you know what, we need to connect uh, good Catholic women who support the church's teaching together. And we need to be more of a voice because there are plenty of, of voices out there in the culture that often claim to speak as mm -hmm. Catholics but are not speaking in support of Catholic teaching. Like Catholics for Choice? Yeah. <laughs> well, and that, we don't want to give them any publicity. I have a little Twitter problem with them. Uh, well, the, uh, secular, <laughs> the secular press loves to put the label of Catholic on people that are against Catholic teaching. Right, right. And in fact, if there is a story on a controversial issue, and this is another one of the reasons that so many of the hot button issues right now in our culture are issues that, that women and women's lives and women's concerns are really at the center of. Mm -hmm. And so you need to have women speaking up and bringing the truth forward. And that means you've got to have Catholic women who are well-formed and who are, who are willing to, um, to just bring the church's teachings forward, but in the way that women do. You know, we, we mm -hmm. express things differently. We, we tell different stories. We have different insights. And again, because so many of these key issues are women's issues, it's so important that we have uh, Catholic women's voices out there. And Mary, the forum's been very active on several levels, hosting symposium where these women members can get together, share, give lectures, kind of have that conversation and, and build friendships where there can be some synergy. But there was also something fabulous that you led, and many of the members of the Catholic Women's Forum were a part of and signed on to. And that was a letter that was sent to Pope Francis. And I think that the current numbers, it's a fascinating, the number of coherent, faithful Catholic women signing on. 47,291 women have joined this letter regarding the pattern of sexual abuse of ex-Cardinal of Washington, Theodore McCarrick. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about the genesis of the letter? What did the letter um, include and what you think its impact mm -hmm. has been? So right after uh, word was came out that um, then Cardinal McCarrick was, uh, was being accused of, of being a, a sexual predator towards seminarians, and then later we found out towards children as well. Uh, I, I, like most Catholics, was shocked and uh, and just, but shocked also when news began to filter out that there were indications that people in the Vatican, as well as people in the church here, had known about his track record for a long time. And so I just put I put pen to paper, or in in the updated sense, you know, typed out a um, just expressing that sense to Pope Francis and just saying, uh, you know, as, as a Catholic woman, as a mother, we need to know the truth here. And so that's what the letter was about. It was really turning to the church and saying, uh, we need accountability, we need transparency, we need answers. We need you, Pope Francis, to come forward and tell us what, what really happened here. And so I wrote that letter and, and posted it and um, 
it was promoted. The Catholic Association did a, a wonderful job of spreading the word there. And so we had we reached that 47,000 signatures within, I don't know, I think it was 10 days. It was lightning. Yeah, it, it was it was amazingly fast. And so we, we sent those um, letters, those signatures over to the Vatican. And about six months after we sent that letter, um, I did get a reply saying that the Pope was aware of it. And mm. um, it didn't say that he particularly read it, but it said that he was, he was aware of it and aware of the contents and, and was reassuring that, you know, the church was looking at this. Uh, and then, as we all know, we've had sort of radio silence for the past year on that issue. And now there are reports that we're going to be hearing uh, hopefully soon from the Vatican with a full report on what happened with Cardinal McCarrick. And again, the the details that are important here are not just the sins of the man, mm-hmm. you know, the things that he did, because we've heard plenty of abuse stories there. I, 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 and I think a lot of those facts have come out, at least in the American context. But what people want to know is why? How was this enabled in mm-hmm. the church? And why was the church so so sort of silent and shrugging its shoulders and allowing someone like that to be promoted to leadership within the church? You know, the Cardinal McCarrick story was, I thought, so kind of eerily similar to the Harvey Weinstein. Mm. It was like the church's mm-hmm. Harvey Weinstein. Mm. And I remember, actually, when I was writing my book, I have a chapter on Hollywood, and I remember reading all these articles where everybody was talking about this bigwig predator. And I'm like, if he's this much of a bigwig, and people being at parties and talking about it, but the name was not out there. Mm-hmm. And I wrote the book, and I, I remember thinking, that's odd. Wrote the book, forgot about it, and then like a year later, the Harvey Weinstein story broke, and when, the, when it came out, I was like, but everybody knew this because I forgot that he mm-hmm. was it. And I was like, I've already heard this before. And I was like, oh. And then I thought, okay, if I'm just some little book author and I knew basically about this guy, everybody must have known. And the same, I think a lot of Catholics felt the same way about Cardinal McCarrick, which is you are in the center of power. Mm -hmm. How could this have gone on for so long? So, I, I mean, I guess to that effect, you know, what are you... What are you hoping are the fruits of the McCarrick report? Yeah, I think one of the problems, um, one of the reasons why he was able to continue doing what he was doing was that there was no fraternal correction, or at least as far as we know. In other words, brother bishops did not say, uh, for the sake of his own soul, mm-hmm. if not concerned for the victims, which obviously they should have had, but they failed to say, stop. You know, get your life together. You need to repent. This is wrong. And honestly, that's one of the tragedies that I see here is that now we have Cardinal McCarrick, former Cardinal McCarrick, who's, what, 80-something. And it's not clear that his he remembers everything. It's not clear that he's really in a position to meet his God with a deep repentance, acknowledging his sin in a way that he might have. 20 years ago had someone had someone corrected, had him. Someone corrected mm-hmm. him so that lack there of was fraternal a lack of correction yeah. is really a lack of love mm-hmm. that that's what that comes down to so so that's that's one of the things i hope we're going to um, and i think we've seen some changes already in terms of willingness of bishops to to begin to um, uh, force their <laughs> errant brother bishops to be more accountable uh, but but we'll see we'll see how that goes there has to be some transparency around that as well and Mary, what about the fact that the seminaries were under McCarrick were being there was sexual licentiousness in the seminaries? Obviously, if, if people were doing if he was doing this kind of thing, then people were winking at mm-hmm. sexual activity amongst the seminarians, or maybe not amongst them, but yeah, maybe amongst them. <laughs> but right. 
as uh, watching from the outside or just reading news reports, this is what shocked me the most. I thought that seminaries were places where be- everybody was working together to develop this celibate uh, devotion right. to the calling. I didn't realize that you could have something that go on That's like that sick. at a seminary and not that people be- and not everyone around just being completely revolted. Right. right. And, and you know, the other thing that we did is the Catholic Women's Forum. Um, in preparation for the Vatican's meeting on child abuse or child protection, we surveyed women mm-hmm. and we asked them what troubled them most about this. And the fact that priests are living double lives, yeah, exactly. it was a huge, huge thing. And so the, the very point that you're making, you know, if someone is struggling with their own um, ability to live chastity, then their superiors need to call them to account. But I know, you know, we can't cover that up. And so there has to be integrity. And I think that was the message that, um, that we were trying to commu- communicate to the Vatican. And I guess that kind of integrity comes from the top down, right? So if the top mm-hmm. guy is not, doesn't have the integrity, it's very hard to ask it of the, of the Or if people. he's not willing to at least take a hard look and say what really is happening here. Mm-hmm. And, and I think when you look at, at uh, sort of the Vatican, it's this big place where information disappears. Re- you know, the reports on Cardinal McCarrick kind of disappeared for a year. Right? And, and yet there has to be a willingness to really grapple with these things and to, uh, to give us the truth. Mary, I remember that Gracie and I had a chance to help translate the survey into Spanish, and it was a great... Oh, I'd forgotten about that, was yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of words, you're like, how do you say that? But it was it was wonderful because you keyed into the fact that the church is multi-ethnic and, and multilingual, especially here in the U.S. I just wanted to remind our listeners that it's now 38 minutes past the hour. Uh, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences, the radio show of the Catholic Association, And we've been speaking with our dear friend, Mary Hassan, of the Catholic Women's Forum and the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., and having a fascinating conversation about what Catholic women can do to help aid the church be that leaven in society that's desperately needed. Mary, I, to volunteer at my kids' school, in fact, even just to be the mystery reader in my son's preschool class. Mystery reader? Mystery reader. <laughs> yeah, that's You're the surprise winner. reader. Oh, yeah. going to, oh does oh, he go well. in a mask? No, no. <laughs> you show up and they're like, it's No, my but mom. maybe I should go in a mask. Yeah. No, no they, you, you come at a time slot and your son or daughter doesn't know that oh, you're the reader and neat. they get all excited. Yeah. Um, but just to do that, just to read a 10-minute book to preschoolers, you have to get certified now by the archdiocese. And so I went through the, the process um, and it was, um, you had to take a several hour course and- Fingerprints. Fingerprint, background mm-hmm. check. And it was absolutely eye-opening for me. I was mm-hmm. so impressed with the training. It wasn't the kind of thing where you just check a box. I sat there, A, horrified, but B, no. riveted by how they kind of explain how stuff like this goes on. And a lot of it mm-hmm. is w- people don't ask questions. People don't check the backgrounds. Right. Uh, you know, teachers move from school to school. Nobody mm-hmm. calls mm-hmm. Um, the old school. And they give you the nitty-gritty. They give oh, yeah. you the real examples. 
yeah. that they are a, shocking to read. And they have actual victims. And they, you know, it was very helpful to me as a mom to think about. I mean, we ended up having um, conversations with our kids about aspects of it that we hadn't talked about before. Mm-hmm. For example, you know, predators often use pornography. Mm-hmm. Uh, they expose a child to that and show them a picture. And that's one of the first things that they do. So all this to say that I was so impressed with what the church has done to protect minors. Mm -hmm. They've clearly done an excellent job. And in fact, now I'm seeing the preschool that my other um, son goes to is starting to follow some of those same steps and things that they're putting into place. Um, What do you feel optimistic that there, that we can replicate that for the internal aspect of the church seminary? So you make just a great point that that the procedures that the church has put in place to protect children are really, really strong. And I think children are safe in the church. And now what what was missing in all that was a way to make the hierarchy itself be accountable. accountable. Mm-hmm. And to also be open about what happens. Right. That people have a right to know if father was transferred or, or he leaves the parish because he's done something bad, People need to know if that's something that really affected the community. In other words, it's not some personal sin that nobody needs to know about. These these things have had a huge impact. And so I think that's one of the changes that the church has made, certainly imp- implementing these procedures to actually keep kids safe. But um, more and more we're seeing a better process about the church being transparent, about opening their files, about acknowledging when they've had particular difficulties. And that we have to get a lot better at that. I think that's one of the areas that still um, there needs to be more. Mary, when you read, especially, you know, I I read the entire Pennsylvania grand jury report, and it it broke my heart. And it also inspired, like, righteous anger. And I know that people, when you hear of these stories, you get so angry that the innocents weren't protected. Mm -hmm. But that anger needs to be channeled in a productive way way both to heal and to uh, rectify problems and also to be the church that we're called to be a part of. I like that the tone, especially in the letter that you wrote, took the tone of fidelity to the church, but also being strong. A lot of other people, when they're responding to these crises and, and, and these revelations, have not used that same kind of tact or fidelity. I think that there's there's a danger, right? There's a danger of not a schism, but there's a danger of disaffection of people leaving the church that the numbers in the pews go down. Yeah, and that's honestly that's one of the heartbreaking things about this besides the absolute horror of, of the abuses that occurred and the the lives that were wounded not just the the children but the ripple effect on their on their families. Um, but the other the other horrible consequence is to see people walking away from the real presence, walking away mm-hmm. from and the sacraments. from the sacraments, walking away from the truth of the church's teaching because of the sins of of people and people high up in the institution. But but that's not God. Let's not desert God. You know, we need God more than ever because of that. So, do you have a number, Mary, or an idea what kind of damage this has done in sheer numbers? The the, the crisis in the United States. Well, I haven't seen an authoritative. Um, number, for example, we've mm-hmm. lost 5% or 10% or whatever. But 
there's been consistent public um, opinion polling in our own polling that we could see people saying that they knew people who left the church because of these specific mm-hmm. things, or they themselves are giving less, or they're less involved, or they're less likely to have their kids be altar servers, things like that. So, you know, we know, and if you talk to the bishops, there's a huge impact. I mean, they see They've, it. They, they see, see it, it not just in the collections, but they see it in. Um, in in the attitudes that, mm-hmm. that they're dealing with, they we are a hurting church, and so what's the solution? I think um, a lot of it is what you mentioned, Andrea. It's it's keeping our own fidelity to the truth, to the sacraments, but insisting upon transparency by those who need to be accountable. But then to realize, okay, the church is in a very weakened state. The mm-hmm. church has has lost so much moral authority in this culture at a time when the culture needs what the church has. More than ever. More than ever. <laughs> it's true. So that's where lay people need to come in. We need to be the hands and the feet and the, you know, the the tongues who are who are speaking the truth and speaking the truth in love and and doing what the church needs to do, spreading the gospel. It's now more than ever. Well and we all know in our own lives, um, not that we're not full of flaws and, and sinful creatures, but trying to live faith gets noticed and it's attractive. And people come and they come for personal advice or they ask for a recommendation or they want your guidance in dealing with either a personal problem or how to work through things. And sometimes if our bishops have lacked, you know, have lost their moral authority, we haven't. Right, and and it doesn't mean that we pretend we're perfect because we're not. But that's that's the beauty of the gospel. You know, the Lord came for sinners, mm-hmm. and the church is full of sinners. So even those bishops who've acknowledged that they didn't do mm-hmm. as much as they should have, well, that's I mean, even more powerful witness. It than is avoiding. It's a, it's a powerful witness, and that humility gives them, puts them in the position then to be able to speak the truth and to be able to really um, help people heal. It's when we ignore the problems that that uh, you know, we're not helping anyone. You know what's very interesting, and we have a, an adult convert in our midst. Um, our beloved colleague Ashley came to the church as an adult. I'm still amazed at these great conversion stories, especially among fantastically smart people who are finding the truth in the church in spite of ourselves. <laughs> yeah, I think I, it's funny. I hadn't thought about that, but I became Catholic not long after the first sort of abuse mm-hmm. crisis wave, and that didn't phase me. Um, but no, I mean, I, I certainly hope that um, you know the second wave, which I think to Catholics has felt a little bit more like a gut punch <laughs> than the first. I mean, the first one was so hard because it dealt with minors, but the second one was so hard because it's like we all thought we had dealt with this. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I think, you know, there is still a, a real vitality to the church that you can kind of see. Um, and I think sometimes it takes kind of going through the refining fire mm-hmm. to move things forward. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the things that I draw strength from is just talking with um, with Catholic women wherever I go and just hearing the stories of faith, hearing how they're living 
their faith and strengthening their families in sometimes really difficult circumstances and how they reach out to others and change lives. I mean, to me, that's, that's the core of the gospel, and we have to focus on those positive things as well and be part of it. It's always such a joy to, to talk with you, Mary, on this subject and on even these very difficult subjects. Thank you. Thank you for yeah. being with us today. And um, if you're interested in uh, the Catholic Women's Forum, please visit catholicwomensforum.org. As we wind down the hour here, next we hear a beautiful homily from Father Roger Landry ahead of Mass tomorrow. We hope that this leaves you inspired. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us this Sunday. Every three years, we have the opportunity to examine at Sunday Mass Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We begin with the Beatitudes, which this year, because of the Feast of the Presentation, we didn't hear. Last week, we pondered our identity as salt of the earth and light of the world. This Sunday, we get into the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, which Jesus calls us to live by a special set of Christian standards, his own standards, a higher set of principles than the norms of the good pagans who love those who love them, and likewise higher than even the most observant Jews. Unless our holiness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus tells us, we will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the stakes can't be higher in what he's going to tell us way too important to ignore. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sets out seven different ways that as his disciple, our holiness is supposed to surpass others. He gives us five this Sunday and the final two next week. These marks of Christian behavior go beyond merely keeping the natural law of the Ten Commandments. They're meant to transform our heart and our whole life from the inside out. They challenge us not just to be good, but holy. All are challenging. But we need to remember that by calling us to these high standards of ordinary Christian living, Jesus is showing an exhilarating confidence in us that together with his help, we can indeed live up to them. The first standard Jesus teaches us involves the whole way we treat others. He says it's not enough for us not to kill people. We need to refrain from the thoughts that set us on the path to maim and murder our brothers. He tells us if you're angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. If you insult him or her, you'll be liable to the council. If you say you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. We're called, in short, to love others from our heart and head outward. We don't love others if all we do is not kill them. If we're envious, jealous, uncomplimentary, or vengeful within, we're still not loving them. To enter into Jesus' kingdom to become holy, we can't kill with our hearts or tongues either. We must love. The second standard to which Jesus calls us is to make the first move in reconciling ourselves with those from whom we have been alienated, either by our sins or their sins. When you're offering your gift at the altar, he tells us, if you remember that your brother or sister has anything against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go, first be reconciled to your brother and sister, and then come offer your gift. Jesus is saying that it's not enough for us merely to be good with God. We also have to be good with others. When we come to pray and ask God's forgiveness, we must examine first whether others have anything against us. If they do, we need to make the first move and go to reconcile, even if we've been the one aggrieved, just like God made the first move in reconciling us when we had sinned against him. The third standard to which Jesus calls us to be truly pure of heart. It's not enough for us not to commit adultery in the flesh, he says. We need to avoid the thoughts that lead to adultery. There's not only a sixth commandment, there's a ninth. 
I say to you, everyone who looks at the woman at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart, Jesus says. He implies that even spouses can be adulterers with each other if they allow lust for each other to invade their marriage. But this standard of purity applies to everyone. Those who use pornography, for example, are given to lustful thoughts, become serial adulterers in the heart. Lust, as St. John Paul II taught, changes the entire intentionality of a human person, from a giver to a taker, from a protector to a predator, from someone who sacrifices his own desires for another's good, to someone who consumes another for his or her own gratification. That is not Jesus' way. He wants to help us become truly pure of heart, and with prayer, self-discipline, the sacrament of confession, and other means of grace, he will help us. The fourth standard is about the indissolubility of marriage. Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife causes her to commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Later on, he explains why. Because in marriage, God joins a man and a woman for the rest of their life in one flesh. And what he has joined, not even all the family court judges in the world can divide. Some, of course, may tragically need for legal reasons to seek a divorce, to protect themselves or their children from an abusive spouse or one who's foolishly wasting joint resources, putting the future of the family at risk, or for other truly serious reasons. But that civil action of divorce doesn't break the one flesh union created by God, which lasts until death. It's easy for us to try to dismiss Jesus' standards and live by Liz Taylor's. Many in our culture do. But we need to open ourselves to the help God gives men and women to remain faithful to the covenant with each other and with him, in poverty or prosperity, sickness or health, good times or worse times, all their days. The final standard Jesus mentions is about our truthfulness. He tells us that we're not to take oaths because we should be so transparently truthful that we have no need. Rather than people who say, I swear to God or cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye to be believed, Jesus wants our yes to be yes and our no to be no. We live in the midst of a culture that lies all the time politicians and press spokesmen who spin rather than tell the truth, others who say what they think others want to hear, but don't keep their word in promises. Jesus says that everything other than total sincerity and honesty is from the devil, the father of lies. And he who is truth incarnate wants his followers to be distinguished as people who never tell lies, whose word is immediately believed because we would rather die than lie. Next week, we'll take up the other two things Jesus says that are meant to distinguish us from others. They're perhaps the most challenging of all. How we're supposed to respond to those who treat us in an evil way by turning the other cheek, and how we're to love even our enemies and pray for our persecutors. But in preparation for this Sunday, we remember that Jesus came to fulfill the law of God and to help us do so. He wants his conversation with us to be truly consequential. If we hear and heed what he's asking and respond to the help he gives, especially in the Holy Eucharist and Confession, Jesus will help us to become, through what he teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, more and more like him. God bless you. And we hope you'll catch us next week when we talk with Catherine Jean Lopez of the National Review on an issue near and dear to our hearts, foster care and adoption. Catch us every Saturday at 5 p.m. on your EWTN local affiliate or on Sirius Channel 120. You can also check us out at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcast.